three, two, one. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, hosting by my lonesomes today as Jeremy Goldcorn is attending to his duties as father of a newborn infant. So Luviola has a little brother, Felix, whose name in Chinese is Wujin, and mother and baby are all doing wonderfully, so uh, we're very, very happy for him. So Mazel Tov. Um, Regular and long-time listeners to this show might have noticed that in the last year or so we've moved a bit away from the old current affairs format, and we've been talking on a lot of other China-related topics, cultural or historical. Uh, we've um, even had the occasional complaint about that shift, but uh, once in a while, of course, we've done something with more of a current news peg, like the recent show that we did with Evan Feigenbaum and Damien Ma on APEC. Uh, so this week, we're going to stay with current-ish events and talk about two things that have been in the news of late. Uh, the World Internet Conference that took place in Wuzhen in Zhejiang Province from November 19th to the 21st. And reaching back a little further, we'll be talking about the fourth plenary session of the 18th Party Congress and what came out of that. We are delighted to welcome Roger Creamers of the China Copyright and Media Blog, which is an online resource providing access and insight into Chinese law and policy. Roger is one of whose name, by the way, is is, is spelled unpronounceably. I mean, it's, it's Jeremy, were he here, could probably give it a good go because he, he speaks, speaks Afrikaans. Afrikaans, which is close enough, right? As one of the, he's. I think you are one of the great unsung heroes of China watching because your blog is really the place to go to find very, very fast, accurate English translations of important, important party pronouncements and regulations and so forth. So after the third plenum, uh, Roger was one of the first to have a full translation of the decision, and once again after the fourth plenum. He did not disappoint. Uh, Roger, you're a postdoc research officer at the Program for Comparative Media Law and Policy at Oxford, right? Absolutely, and glad to be here. And yeah, and welcome back. It's good to see you. Um, let's start, jump right in with the, the, this World Internet Conference that you just returned from, right? You just got came up from 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 Ujin? Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of a, a debutante ball for Lue. Um, that's how, how I've sort of seen it. He's, the, of course, the new cyber czar of China. Um, can you tell us a little bit about him and what his role was in, in convening this thing? Well, um, the interesting thing is that uh, this is a very new thing, and it was organized very much at short notice. Yeah, and I understand it was like two months ago that they started sending... Not even. Uh, many of the diplomatic and foreign participants uh, were telling me that they got their invitation three or four weeks ago. Oh, wow. Um, so very much organized it um, on short notice. But if you look at the history of what used to be the State Internet Information Office, which is now renamed, at least in English, the Chinese name didn't change. In English, it's now called the Cyberspace Administration of China, with mm-hmm. the unfortunate acronym of CAC. Um, <laughs> it was established about two, two and a half years ago as a department of the State Council Information Office. Right. And it was just a department that didn't have a lot of independent personality. And over the last two years, we've just seen that this has... Um, it, it rose up the ladder at an at an astonishing speed as internet you know regulation became more and more important. Now let's let's talk a little bit about this SIIO, the State Internet Information Office. So that was comprised mainly of people from SCIO, right, from the State Council Information Office, from MIIT, which yes. is the Ministry of, of Industry and Information Technology, uh, and then Lue himself comes from Shenzhenbu. Is that right? Um, I, I, um, I I think I I believe so. I think he spent his uh, his previous post in Sichuan in the in the in, in the propaganda department there, but he was uh, appointed to the position uh, early last year. And uh, one of the first things he did was, and and it's been mentioned on this podcast, it was this series of dinners with big V's, where right. immediately he stepped in. Identified a problem. Uh, identified one of the key. Let's make sure. I mean, just to listeners who might not know the jargon, because you know nobody uses Weibo anymore, right? So a big <laughs> V is a very, very popular celebrity user. They're you know often they're they're actors or directors or uh, very wealthy business people, or in in the case of of, of many of these um, so called gungzhi public intellectuals. 
Yeah, and so what happened is you had these people's with, uh, people with millions of followers, and if there's anything the the Communist Party is concerned about, it's the speed of transmission of information. And so if you have someone who has 50 million followers, and let's say that every one of those followers has five followers of their own, within seconds you can potentially send information to 250 million people. That's right. Um, which in this country is 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 difficult. And so they were identified as very traditional CCP style a group of people that I didn't need either needed to be co-opted or confronted. And that's pretty much where Liu Wei earned his spurs last year. Right. And so we can, uh, I, I will uh, try to include in the, uh, on the podcast page links to that previous podcast where we discussed Liu Wei and his, his infamous dinners uh, where, where he had these, I think this was in February of 2013 was when, when this all started. Right. And by the end of the year, I mean, we had seen Weibo, uh, use really kind of drop precipitously. Although, I mean, it's it's very much a matter of debate as to whether that was because of the Big V crackdown. Uh, because I think that in, in, in terms of chronology, there was a, a mass exodus from Weibo toward Weixin and, and to, to other, well, mostly toward, toward Weixin, uh, that actually kind of predated the, the, the Big V crackdown. It was after these dinners, but before they actually started, you know, marching, you know, the, the likes of Charles Xue out in front of CCTV cameras, in orange jumpsuits and handcuffs. Right? Well, I guess the question is always, who gets the hint first? Um, and so I, I think the deal was, um, as usual, that people were given a bit of time to come to terms with the new normal, and then people who resisted had to be dealt with um, in other ways. But the problem isn't just those big Vs. They play a big role, of course, in the distribution of information. But the other problem was that... Um, how many hundreds of millions of cell phones and smartphones are there now in China? And all of them have cameras. And it seems to me that one of the big problems with Weibo, at least from a governmental point of view, was a picture tells a thousand words. That's right. And so you photograph visible instances of corruption or abuse. A great example is uh, Biao Ge, yeah, the, the, the brother watch. Right? Brother watch, the, the, the official from Shanxi who was seen smiling at the scene of a traffic accident with a very expensive watch. Right, and way the, above his pay grade. Right? Way above his pay grade. And indeed turned out that that was not the only watch way above his pay grade that he owned. And so part of that as well was to try and attenuate the circulation of images of very visible instances of corruption to a, a much more private platform. Okay. Um, so what, what kind of a role did Liu Wei play actually in the proceedings at the WIC, at the World Internet Conference in Ujian? Well, most of the people I talk to essentially say this is, this is his party. Right. Uh, because over the summer, we've seen that the, um, the CAC has been given much more control over uh, internet governance writ large, not just uh, content administration, but... Um, and that's what people tend to think of immediately as content administration, but there are other aspects of it, including cybersecurity, including right. Exactly, um, and and so you're uh, as well as inter, uh, international internet governance, and um, there is a couple of things coming up in international cyberspace now where the previous uh, the previous paradigm, I think, of the way that the internet worldwide was governed is coming to an end. Right. Um, I think you might describe it as sort of a move from an internet that was governed by technologists. They were essentially the ones who were creating the rules of the internet, and that's moved to a time where now state actors are, are playing an increasingly important um, if not always welcome role in, in internet governance. That's one big aspect of it. The second big aspect of it is you're seeing a geographical shift where historically the internet and certainly the technical resources that underpin the internet were largely governed by the United States. So ICANN, the organization that controls the technical addressing aspects of the internet. So in other ways, that makes sure that information can be sent and received through a uniform administration of, well, internet addresses, um, was uh, under the control of the United States government. And recently, the U.S. government announced that it would uh, cede that control to a still-to-be-formed body uh, for which it outlined a few characteristics, amongst others that it should be more globalized and uh, multi-stakeholder. But that really hasn't always been the sticking point for China. I mean, putatively, I mean, they were they were interested in seeing control of ICANN move out of just the hands of, of the U.S., but uh, it hasn't really been uh, 
the ultimate issue for them. And this is one that, that China has always sort of um, been a little bit even comfortable with. I mean, the, the, I, the, there isn't a sense that, that the United States has abused its authority in terms of uh, internet addressing, in terms of what ICANN actually does. I mean, when I, I look, for example, I mean, China was by no means in the forefront of the move to have top-level domain names now uh, available in non-Latin scripts, right? Uh, I, I happen to know that uh, as somebody who works in the internet business, I mean, I suppose I should just do my perfunctory disclosure here. I work for Baidu. It, it seems like there's very little interest in, for example, Chinese domain names uh, coming from the Chinese businesses themselves. There's, in fact, most people that I've encountered who are peddling these names are are not Chinese. <laughs> they, they sort of assume that there would be an interest. This is coming more from uh, the Cyrillic world, from Russia specifically, and from from the Arabic world, right? Yeah. Um, although I would change that, uh, I would say that there has been a change in discourse on that, particularly after the Snowden affairs, where there has emerged a particular sort of symbolic discourse where the idea that the United States was a sort of benign, um, a benevolent um, steward of the internet, that, that has come to an end. And so now moving away from very visible and, and therefore symbolically important um, images of U.S. control over the Internet have become politically very relevant. That's, that's perfectly understandable, and it's, it's true, too. Uh, but I think that maybe in, in a larger sense, what's happening here is, look, I mean, let, let's, let's, you're old enough to remember, you know, in the early days of the World Wide Web, the general idea about it was that it was something that floated freely above the petty concerns of nation states, that it was sort of a borderless entity. I mean, people didn't really understand it well. We had, you know, idiot politicians in America describing it as a series of tubes and whatnot. But but, but uh, there was this uh, uh, a techno-utopian idea of the Internet as something that transcended sovereignty. Yeah, and, and there's sort of something, these things like the hacker's declaration of independence. That, That's right. You know, we are no longer bound by your laws. We are no longer bound by your control. We will we will subvert you. There was a physical reality though that really you know gave land to that, which was that the routers and the and and, and the uh, the servers that actually comprised and and of course the fiber optic cable that connected it, uh, they sat on sovereign territory and crossed sovereign borders, and that was there was always a reality to that. And I mean, if you don't believe that, I mean, look at look at the way that say WikiLeaks was always sort of you know, debating between Iceland and Sweden, which are two countries which to anyone else's mind have just, uh, you know, almost boundlessly liberal uh, internet governance. But uh, they, they saw enough of a difference that they, you know, they think it was an important decision to locate in Iceland rather than in Sweden. Right? Uh, exactly. And the, and, the, and, and the geographic characteristics of the technology are important because any cable that, and this is something that we've seen in, in the recent um, Intel and surveillance questions, is that cables that come through the UK may process internet traffic from anywhere in the world. That's right. And so all that GCHQ needs to do is to tap that cable uh, and find out what's going on. And so there is an aspect of, of sovereignty, and, and, and this is a big word to the Chinese as well as to the Russians, which means essentially <coughs> to be in control of your own affairs. And, uh and so... I, and maybe this is where the ICANN discussion is becoming interesting, because once you start talking about addressing and routing, you are starting to talk about the routing of traffic. That's right. Where you might say or think or propose that um, communication flows from A to B. At the moment, there is no way of knowing what C, D, E or F they come through. That in the future might change. What's always struck me as, as particularly odd, and I don't know how if you feel the same way, is that something is incredibly important to the economy, to society, to culture, to politics, and to national security uh, as the internet. It's, it's received so little real attention from policymakers and, and so little real effort uh, to coordinate among international uh, act, state actors uh, in international bodies. W what do you suppose, why, why? I mean, this is, for fuck's sake, it's 2014. I mean, we've had the World Wide Web since the early 90s. What, you know, c could you imagine, um, you know, moving 20 years ahead from, from the emergence of a massive, say, technology like, uh, say, nuclear weapons and not having any kind of an international regime in place? No. Uh, but what, what's going on here? Why the, the, the slow movement in, in, 
in international regulation? I, I think there's I think there's two questions here, uh, or, or two points here, one relatively small, one bigger. The smaller point is that we've had the World Wide Web since the 1990s, but it's changed so fast, and the way that it is used, the risks that it presents, uh, the ways of dealing with them, uh, have equally evolved very, very rapidly. So if you look at, just if you look at China, internet was, obviously the internet was being monitored and censored, but it didn't receive, as a technological thing, it didn't receive actually a lot of attention until, say, 2011 or so, um, with the window train crash, the upsurge of Weibo, the emergence of smartphones with cameras in them, um, and that led then to the establishment of the SIIO. Um, the second and bigger problem is that we actually don't know how to do this. The, the, the problem is, for instance, with nuclear technologies, it's a relatively easily manageable thing in political terms. Right. The number of countries who have them is very small. It's a very easily definable category. So you have about 10 people around the table and it's a problem that you can relatively easily materials do. are controllable. And, right. Exactly. The problem with the internet is that the moment you start talking about internet governance, you're talking about everything. You're talking about infrastructure. You're talking about content. You're talking about trade. You're talking about security. Um, and you're talking about it with the involvement of hundreds of millions of people around the globe. And so the big political problem that we have is even before we know what kind of governance regime that we want in terms of substance, we first have to think about um, what terms of internet regime we want in terms of procedure, what kind of bodies do we want, what kind of decisions do we want them to make. And even before that, we need to agree on a process to get there. And we're, we're not even there yet, because partly because the positions of the big players internationally are so far apart. Right. Let's state the obvious here. I mean, the ideological chasm is pretty pretty substantial here, right? I mean, you have, on the one hand, states, I mean, probably best embodied by China, but also including a lot of, of, of states in, say, the, the, uh, the Gulf region, uh, including Russia, uh, including other uh, authoritarian states around the world uh, who are lined up on one side. Is this a, a, an ideological divide that means no real progress is going to be made? Are we going to see a world that will split into two very different internet regimes? One can wonder the extent to which this is not already the case. You and I both know that the internet we get in China is rather different from the internet oh, yeah, yeah, we get in, right. in the UK or the US. It's it's not as black and white um, so, for instance, uh, it's not often debated, but there's pervasive internet blocking in the UK. We have a body called the Internet Watch Foundation, which um, consistency, uh, consistently blocks uh, child pornography. Right, but Obvi I think that's less objectionable, obviously, to the blocking of, say, you know... Absolutely, but it means sites. that you can see that the point that blocking is permissible under certain circumstances. Right, but I, I don't see that as necessarily a... a, a, a particularly slippery slope i mean i think i think well it can be what we've ha what we've seen in the uk is that there have been voices uh for the moment not yet successful but that say that the same regime should be used to block content violating intellectual property rights right uh, um, right so it, it might become a slippery slope i guess um but i guess very much the ideological divide is also with respect to um who is governing these things in this country? And what right. we've seen is that from Silicon Valley, um, we've seen, and very often it's built into the technology, a particular libertarian view of how the world should be organized and therefore how the technology should work. And it's a view that isn't necessarily shared everywhere in the world. It, it, it offers sort of a teleology to the internet that says information wants to be free or, you know. That yes. And, and um, Cory Doctorow, the internet writer, came to Oxford and had this very beautiful simile where he said he went up to a cabin with information, gave it a cup of coffee, uh, patted it on the back. And as information said, sobbing over that cup of coffee. It said, I don't want to be personalized because information is not a person. It doesn't want anything. And so I think what we need to recognize is that the internet is shaped as much by our choices as by any ingrained teleology or necessity. But that means that we have to make the right choices and we have to make them well. 
I'm glad to hear that Corey said that. I mean, he's he's one of these people who I mean, might very easily, just because of his own sort of ideological predilections, slip into that other camp of anthropomorphizing information. And, and I'm glad that. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I think that, that that's it's it's an interesting change in, in the whole discourse around it. I mean, I think people now understand the naivete of the of that libertarian kind of Silicon Valley ethos. Uh, but it's still, it's still, you know, very much out there, right? I mean, it still does pervade, especially in in the liberal Western democracies, a lot of the discourse on it, right? I mean, there's a, a knee jerk response to, and people don't understand issues around, say, net neutrality, but you know, they feel like, oh, that must be something that we we should support, right? That that is one, um, but two is that in a way, the, the this particular ideology in a way combines libertarianism with with technocracy in very interesting ways, and mm-hmm. and actually does things that uh, the Chinese government would well recognize, if not support. So on my iPhone, I now have an app that I can't remove. It's called HealthBook. Uh, and and it's there to monitor my weight, um, my heart. Right, fuck that thing. I hate that thing. I mean, I, well, well, yeah. But the point is that <laughs> that the point is that this is th- two steps away from essentially raising insurance premiums for fat people. Right. Um, and this is something that the Chinese government, I think, would very well recognize in this sort of very technocratic way of saying there are these indices that we want to maximize, and technology will assist us in doing so. <laughs> Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the actual substance yeah. of the conference itself. I mean, they managed to bring in uh, a, a number of people from. I, I know that I, I met with a couple of people who were invited from other states, from uh, not heads of state, no heads of state attended, but you know, special advisors on internet and 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 so forth. Uh, they also brought in, of course, leading Chinese internet companies. Uh, yeah. my, my own boss, Robin Lee from Baidu, and as well as Jack Ma from from uh, from, from Alibaba, and Ma Huateng, Pony Ma from yeah. from Tencent were all there. I mean, the sort of the big three of BAT. Uh, you had uh, Reed Hoffman from LinkedIn. You had a, a few other major internet uh, CEOs as well. Chairman Thomson Reuters. Yeah, Chairman Thomson Reuters. Was there. Or, or the CEO. So, um, what what was the the agenda here? What was the putative agenda, and what actually was discussed, and what if anything actually came out of the conference? I mean, were there closed door sessions? I, I understood that there weren't. That there were there was no actual. You know, uh, there were were no smoke filled rooms where where you know things were actually decided upon what what was um your understanding the 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 agenda well the slogan for the conference was one interconnected world shared and governed by all mm-hmm. and so I, I i think um the interesting thing is that there was indeed relatively senior government re- representation from countries like russia a couple of african countries but almost to as a whole uh the eu and the united states didn't show so on the program, uh, there was supposed to be, uh, I forgot his name, um, someone at state, someone very high up who, okay. uh, who, who should be there uh, and in the end didn't turn up. The U.S. Department of State. Yes. Right. And so in, in that sense, I, I, had the, I had the feeling that that flipped off the organizers a little bit where <laughs> this is a coming out party. This is about ch- establishing, you know how China is always going on in international relations and international affairs about its huayuquan, its yeah. power of discourse, its right. ability to set the terms of the debate and to frame the questions at issue. And I think that was very much what this conference was about from the Chinese point of view. Um, and so what you had was this very interesting combination where the two main thrusts were indeed the Chinese voice and Chinese business. And, and not only was there, as you say, very uh, very high involvement from uh, the BAT companies as well as a couple of other ones. There was also, in the middle of the conference venue, this huge exhibition of the Chinese internet industry and uh, how great it was becoming. And so I think part of it also has to be seen as a... Obviously, we've had a couple of deals that were made by uh, Alibaba and Baidu, amongst others, in Brazil a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Um it seems to me that the Chinese internet businesses feel they are ready to conquer the world, and um, they want they want to now very visibly with government support say we are now sitting at the table and we're legitimately there because we are huge. Right. Uh, what was your sense though uh, about whether uh, this message was was pushed back on by by participants at the conference. I mean, because I think the, the way that it was framed, certainly by uh, the, the covering media, was that this was its 
its intent. It was an intent in, in to you know, sort of seize the microphone and and to uh, to make sure that, that that from here on out, it's neither going to be the norm nor the form to just sort of acquiesce in this sort of liberal hegemonic notion of what the internet is. Uh, that we are going to assert sovereignty was was that a success in any in any meaningful way? Um, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that, at least for many of the uh, Western participants that I spoke to who are very impressed by, for instance, simply by the venue. It was in this beautiful, historic water town close to Suzhou, beautiful surroundings, quite well organized. Um, and and I think there is more and more a conclusion now among Western internet people at large that China should at least be listened to and taken seriously. Um but at the same time, I'm wondering to what extent that China was very successful in, 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 in some ways, trying to ram down a particular vision of, of Internet governance. So the thing is, at the moment, there are a couple of processes going on concurrently of sort of where should we go in terms of Internet governance. There is the Internet Governance Forum run by the UN and the ITU, which is all about multi-stakeholdership. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of NGOs and so on and so forth. There is something that is informally known as the London Process, which is a series of conferences that started in London. It went to Budapest. It went to Seoul. It'll be in The Hague next year, which is about butting heads together and trying to come to some conclusions on the Internet for the moment relatively vague. Uh, and then there was Net Mundial, the Brazil conference, which uh, I think we can very much see in the... A precursor to this, right? Yes, exactly. As a newly emerging power coming up and say, wait a minute, we want a bigger voice in this. And what happened at Net Mundial is that they actually put a lot of organizations around the table and say, we are going to have a declaration where at least we lay out some fundamental principles that we can all agree on. And that became the the Net Mundial Declaration, and it's about interconnectivity and 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 so on and so forth, but also human rights. And it seems to me that the Chinese were well. It doesn't seem to me um, they did. Right? They, they did. slipped it under the door. In fact, right? in my case, at about eleven thirty p.m. when I was having a shower, and so the last night of the conference, the night before the closing ceremony, I suddenly found this envelope which had a draft Wujian Declaration in it, uh, with 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 nine principles. Um, such as enhancing cyberspace connectivity, respecting internet sovereignty, cybersecurity, child protection, and so on and so forth. Okay, I mean, the, the, the key one, though, is obviously respecting internet sovereignty. That was their, their key talking point. The rest of it, I mean, is, is, is pretty boilerplate, right? Yeah, that, that is stuff we can relatively easily agree on. Although, you know, with things like child protection, um, the, obviously, it's protecting children from appearing in uh, rather uh, right, in problematic ways. Conflict, right. But equally, and, and this seems to be the Russian and the Chinese point of view, protecting minors surfing on the internet from particular objectionable content. And certainly in China in the past, mm -hmm. uh, child protection against harmful content has been one of these ways in which, uh, in which control has been imposed. And and the thing is, um, I don't, I have, I hadn't talked to. Any uh, Western participant who was even aware of the fact that this declaration was coming, it isn't unexpected. This sort of thing happen happens more often. Um, but there was a point to it where suddenly, you know, we are supposed to agree on something that we didn't even see or hear about until 11 p.m. On the evening of the conference, where it had this very nice covering letter where it said that, oh, if you have any comments on this, please submit them to the organizing committee before, was it 8 p.m., 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. next morning? <laughs> yeah, you um, know, pull an all-nighter. and Exactly. And so what's the, wrong with that? <laughs> and, and so on the, on the morning before the opening ceremony, there were a fair few people essentially saying, you know, um, we are going to have to make diplomatic representations. Or if they were on the panel of the closing ceremony, I feel problematic um, sitting on this panel, which appears to endorse this particular document. Oh, but they said this then in, into, I mean, on, on stage, they were they were able to convey this. Um, the thing is, I unfortunately had to leave before the closing ceremony. What I heard is that um, it was quietly withdrawn after behind the screens pushback. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was hardly a very smart move. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine who, who signed off on that idea. I mean, it seems to me like... Like, like just the sort of thing that that um, would cause people to recoil in in kind of horror. I mean, it's yeah, exactly. I mean, if this is a foretaste of what uh, uh, the new uh, sort of multilateral governance of the internet is going to, to taste or is going to be like, then I'll have none of that. Exactly. 
Fascinating. Uh, I'm, you know, I think we're just starting to see the sort of the postmortems coming in. I'm, I'm very glad that we were able to, to chat, chat about this. Let's now um, move back a little bit in time and talk about uh, something that I, I have to confess tended to make my eyes glaze over at, at the time. I mean, I, I uh, bravely soldiered through some of your translation. Uh, I, I, I've read a, f- a few stories on that. There were some excellent pieces that I would recommend written by a friend of mine, Rebecca Liao, who is a lawyer. Uh, so she's uh, somebody who watches constitutionalism issues and, uh, and, and rule of law issues uh, very carefully. Uh, so she's, she wrote something in, in Foreign Policy and another piece in the FT uh, I would uh, recommend that you read. But um, we're, we're talking about uh, the fourth plenum, of course, um, the fourth plenary session of the 18th Party Congress. What the fuck is a plenum, Roger? Can you explain what, what kind of, you know, what, what, what is the process that takes place there? What are these things for and what are they signaling? Uh, why are third plenums usually considered to be the really important ones, whereas the fourth plenums are, are, aren't so much? Well, um, plenums are plenary sessions of the Central Committee, the, the, the sort of the core council of, of the Communist Party of China. And what they are there for, essentially, is a lot of people think that this is something like a, a party convention in the, in the United States, where a question is asked in the beginning, for instance, who is going to be our presidential candidate, and a decision is, is made as it goes along, and in the end, hey, presto, you've, you've got your conclusion. Um, I think in China you should rather see plenums in in a sort of a democratic centralism way as the final stage of a process of information gathering, drafting, and in the end decision making where the plenum is used essentially to discuss the various ramifications of the decision that has been reached and if there are any sort of last minute small changes or or, or some sort of less important wording that, that people really want in or out um, that that can happen there. So with this particular plenum, um, which took place in October, the drafting process for the decision started in January, where um, it was decided by the standing committee that the um, the next topic for the plenary session after the third plenum, which was all about comprehensive reform, the the next session uh, should be about. Um, Constitutionalism. Co- well, the rule of law, law in rule general. Law, right. uh, ruling the country according to the law. Right. Let's let's talk about that. What what is the difference between? I mean, there there was an awful lot of debate circulating about uh, you know the, the semantics of what uh, what is the Chinese phrase for rule of law? What is rule by law? What is ruling the country according to law? What what are the the differences between these 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 these, these different phrases? Um, it it is very much a problem of interpretation, and certainly with English, it is very much a problem of us. And I'm very grateful for uh, to you for posting that Mark Lilla article uh, a while ago. Not having a language to really discuss the way that these things are being um, are, are are being negotiated in China or being interpreted in China. So guo literally means to rule the country. Using or so exactly using law to rule to govern mm-hmm. the country, right? Fajr means law governance, right? Um, but it doesn't tell you whether or not it's rule by law or rule of law. Right. And we teleologically like to interpret. You know, there's there's a big strand of scholarship that essentially assesses uh, Chinese legal reform in in to the extent that is there convergence, yes or no, with us, quote unquote. Um, are they becoming like us, which is seen uh, as rule a good of thing? Law, where law actually is above, uh, above rule, above above the actual exercise of power. Whereas rule by law, let's let's make sure that people understand the difference here is is that law becomes instrumental, something that is used by rulers to to govern. Yes, but but the thing is, and 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 this is the interesting point. Um, you tend to get a mix in, in, in most systems. Part of the answer, I think, is the question to to what extent is the architecture of state power created through generally observed norms, which, which we can in most countries call constitutional law, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to – I mean, legal instrumentalism is the idea that you use law to achieve a certain purpose. Now, this is what most countries do all the time. In practice, yeah. Yes. So um, you want health care for more people. 
you you get a law. Um, mm-hmm. At least in the U.S., you get a law. You get Obamacare. It's passed through Congress. It's signed by the president. That's that's how it works. Um, I guess the broader question in that sense is: Is there a legal construction which is generally obeyed, which determines how congressional members get appointed, how a president gets appointed? What are the power of judges? So you're talking about defining and limiting the role of the various elements of public power. I think that has to be a, a, a very crucial element of rule of law. Um, That's not, really what it's all about. Yeah. It's, it's, it's whether the, the law actually does impose restrictions on... on, on yes. Uh, right. but, uh, but let's not forget that there's a very dual element to it because by creating restrictions, law empowers... If you say you only get to do this, you equally say you're this is what you get to do. Right, 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 right. Well, yeah, yes, but you're also empowering people outside of of the the, the strictly defined ruling elite to yeah. uh, con- to constrain. So there's yeah, there's power involved in that too. Uh, I want to get get into the, the nitty gritty of what was actually talked about. Um, I, we'll go back into some abstraction uh, in a little bit, but I think that um, well, there was this communique on com- comprehensively advancing ruling the country according to the law. I think that was your translation. I think um, most of the analysts that I saw, um, and this was for me some time ago, so it's a little bit hazy. I'm probably forgetting a lot. Was saying that the fourth plenum was mostly about getting local courts in line. Uh, I remember there were you know, calls for the creation of circuit courts and. It, um, that, that's that's part of the document, and in, in just for yeah. an instance, uh, to prevent local judges and local party cadres from you know getting too familiar with one another, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of of the imperial system where they they, they had the uh, the censorate, exactly the censorate. Well, that is partial. That that is certainly true. I guess uh, a lot of sort of why talk about rule of law. I think a lot of the answer has to be sought in the fact that it seems to me that there is a particular paradigm in the way that the the, the Chinese state is run that is becoming problematic. And and certainly one of the bigger problems is that how do you actually ensure that policy decided upon by Beijing gets implemented locally rather than subverted? Right. Um, and obviously, one of the big problems that there have been is that historically, judges in China have just have been seen as just another part of the administration. So you'll have an administration for radio, film and television, which is in charge of radio, film and television. You'll have an administration for industry and commerce that's in charge of industry and commerce. And in the same way, uh, judges are in, charm, uh, are, are in charge of a particular form of decision making, which is... Um, the laws um, passed by the NPC and its standing committee. The problem is that, th- that therefore, judges have also been part of the system of administrative appointments right. where they are beholden to local governments for their evaluation and, therefore, any promotion or salary increase uh, or even not being fired, um, which obviously generates um, very problematic issues of local protectionism and, and corruption. It, it essentially means that the local party secretary has the local judges in, By the, the balls, right? in, the, in their pocket, right. I was going to say. But yeah. Um, and, um, and so one of the things that we're going to see, and we're not yet sure how this is going to pan out, is that they want to create what they call cross-regional courts. So they want to have co- courts that in some way transcend administrative boundaries. And so ensure that there is much less of a relationship between um, local administrators and local judges. Because one very important role of judges is is what is known as administrative litigation. So this is where a particular government department has issued a decision. You don't agree with it as being subject to that decision. Um, you go to the courts and you ask the courts to to review that decision to see whether or not it was it was the right one. And obviously, this is one particular area where it is very very easy for local governments to then impose their will on courts and 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 potentially subvert the process. Mm-hmm. So by taking away uh, or trying to take away that uh, node of 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 abuse, um, it seems to me that Beijing hopes to further. Uh, well, the implementation of policy. Give us a sense of how difficult that's going to be. What sorts of obstacles are in there? The path to this, to creating uh, through these sort of uh, you know trans-regional uh, judicial administration, administrative bodies, circuit courts, as, as I guess we understand it in American shorthand. Uh, 
how difficult would the, will this be to actually implement? What are the what are the challenges that they'll face? Well, the problem is that um, this this was two and a half lines in in the decision, and so until we get concrete plans on what are those new jurisdictions going to look like, is essentially uh, there's a lot we don't know. So if what happens is that you uh, rather than have a court in every county, you're going to have these courts in three counties. You still may have a problem that if the heads of those three con- counties go and sit together and make a deal, um, you're, you're still going to to have corruption. Uh, even if it's brought to the provincial level, you might be in a situation where, uh, where, where you have more effective provincial supervision for smaller cases over local affairs, but at the provincial level, the same the same problem remains. Um, I guess that's that would be one of the bigger issues. Now, um, there was an awful lot of talk about constitutionalism in, in the communique. Uh, but I think that anyone who's been a China watcher uh, would have been struck by a, a kind of irony. Wasn't there, after all, I mean, didn't the year 2013 kind of begin uh, with a, a crackdown? I mean, because of that, that now infamous um, editorial that was written against uh, the I'm saying it was it was it was one of the um one of the the Nanfang groups that that published an editorial uh, talking about constitutionalism and it got them in quite a bit of hot water. There was actually protests in favor uh, of them. The Global Times wrote a, a scathing editorial against you know de- denouncing constitutionalism now sort of as a as a tool of. Of 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 um, you know, and it actually started a little earlier. So on four December twenty twelve, Xi Jinping gave a speech at an event to commemorate the thirtieth anniversary of China's constitution. Right, where one of the things he said was, uh, "The life of the constitution lies in its implementation. So we need to implement the constitution." And this was seen by a group of liberals um, as, as a green light, as a signal. Right. Y- you remember when Xi Jinping just came in? Is he a reformer? Is he going to be the son of his father, Xi Jongshun? who created the Shenzhen SEZs, who created the Guangdong Miracle, who defended Hu Yaobang at the meeting that ended up ousting Hu Yaobang. Um, Is he his father's son? And that seemed to have been a signal to essentially let loose. And so they wrote an open letter, which was published online. um, And they wrote another New Year's editorial in Yan Huang Chunxiao. And it seems to me that that the Nanfang editorial was part of that. Uh, shameless self-promotion. I wrote a paper on this for anyone who's interested in the details, which can be downloaded free of charge from SSRN. Um, the uh, And what happened next is that you get this crackdown, it becomes quiet, and then document number nine happens. Do you remember that, of course. that document number nine, this document on some ideological risks for our country? And it identified nine categories of harm to the country, uh, or, or seven, perhaps, sorry, Um and the There's first one, document number nine, with seven points, right? Yeah, seven um, deadly sins, as we say. Ex- exactly, exactly. And so, Chipujiang, the the number one was you have these people talking about constitutionalism, which aims to subvert our way of uh, our way of governing and our system, and tries to replace it with these false Western notions of of constitutional rights and so on and so forth. Right. Um, but if you shift the question to Chinese, the question is what word is used. So the constitutionalists were talking about Xianzheng. Yeah, Xianzheng, not Xianfa. It, well, well Xianzheng is an interesting word because um, if you're if you're a historian, Xianzheng was the sort of the proposed third stage of Guomindang rule as outlined by Sun Yat-sen back in the day. Right. First the dictatorship, then tutelage, and then… Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so it was this idea that Xianzheng would be this beautiful end state of a open democratic China um, ruled by a constitution, which, you know, in a way… There's some Confucian echoes where everyone would know their place and the world Datong, would be happy. Right. Datong, exactly. Um, Xianzheng is not part of Communist Party speak. It is it is not part of the jargon. Right. What they say is Guo, to rule the country with or on the basis of or through um, Again, that, the that constitution. Again, that slippery preposition, right? E- exa- exactly. And so if you if you look up uh if you if you look at that term and you look at the way that it's being used, and you look at the way that the constitution comes back in, 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 in various Chinese legal and regulatory documents. For instance, every document that deals with online content, has a, or, or, or indeed media content, has a list of things you're not supposed to, to have, a, a list of prohibited content. Mm-hmm. Number one on that list is always 
content violating the basic norms determined in the constitution. Right. But where are those basic norms? We immediately think, well, they're rights, right? Constitutions are about rights. They're about rights to free speech and religion and assembly and demonstration and strike and you name it. Interestingly, in our constitution, in the American constitution, those were actually, uh, they weren't part of the original document itself. But, yeah, they had uh, to be appended later on. Right, right. Exactly. Um, but when you read the Chinese constitution, there is a, there is a bit of it that... that people quite often skip and that I think is actually the major part of the constitution, which is the preamble. And the preamble gives us historic justification for why the party is in charge and what is it going and what is it going to do. So it starts with China is a country with 5,000 years of history and then you get a very short review of the historically correct way of history where you had a feudal state that was... Um, that was attacked by imperialist powers and then fell and then the republic was tried and it didn't work and then the communists came along and saved the day and now under the leadership of the communist party let's march towards a brighter tomorrow so those are the the basic principles determined in the constitution and every, and everything that comes after that can only be in my view seen in the light of that so i mean that's that's basically uh a that historiography that you're talking about uh you're you're almost tying this to kind of uh, ancient ideas about well the, the things that are deeply embedded. Uh, maybe I'm reading in too much into this, but into sort of Chinese political culture, into this you know, ideas about leadership and virtue. Well, I would strongly agree with that. Actually, um, I think one of the reasons that Marxism people very often wonder why was Marxism successful in China? Marxism was written for an emerging industrial society with a large proletariat. China didn't have that. China was an agricultural state. Um, and I think it is because there are sort of key epistemological premises in Marxism that resonated very much with certain elements of... Um, Confucian of China. historiography. Yeah, exactly. So, so this idea that there can be a utopian future in which everyone is happy, call it Datong or call it communism or call it the Chinese dream. Um, it is an element of it that 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 I think that very much resonated. The idea that Marxism proposes a particular, which came to be known as scientific orthodoxy, to understand the world and therefore to control it, again resonated very well with these reformers in the twenties and the thirties who were heavily scientific in their thinking. I mean, their whole their whole worldview was deeply deeply influenced by that. Right? Absolutely. So so here you have an ideology, and I'm trying to use the word ideology in a non-ideological way, just as a structure of concepts and ideas that are used to, to change the world or transform society, that, that, that made sense to a lot of people who were looking for an answer to the question, how do we change this country, which is now divided, it's being attacked by imperialist powers, it's weak, it's disjointed and disunited. How do we build this up again? Marxism, and specifically Marxism-Leninism, offered something that not only explained imperialism, not only explained, you know, uh, why in, in in the inevitable march of history this such a thing would emerge, also explaining China's relative backwardness, but right, as you as and also cloaked in in this 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 scientific or scientific uh, garb garb as you right. exactly, but it provides you a recipe to solve that. So you need a leading state which has the advanced knowledge, right? The vanguard party idea that you have a small core of people who have the knowledge and the insight. This is knowledge driven. This is the idea that ideas precede action. So again, fitting very, very nicely into the sort of mention idea of you know those laboring with their heads, ruling rightly over those laboring with their hands, and, and, and right, fitting very, kings. very nicely into right exactly uh, the whole sage king idea. And yeah, I mean the whole long tradition of rule by knowledge elites. Yes, and and so it, in a way, it's interesting when you look at China today. Um, what I will say is that. There is actually, when you look at the nitty-gritty of the way that very often things are being done, there is a huge commitment to evidence-based policymaking, certainly at the, at, at the ministerial and technocratic level, with local experiments and um, significant input from, from academics. So, for instance, there's a new copyright law that's uh, being drafted, where the copyright law is being revised. And at first, they put a group of people in charge of it who were academics, not Policymakers, not um, academics. Right. I think that there's there's um, 
a, a, a very bad lack of understanding about the extent to which uh, the Chinese Communist Party is obsessed with statistics, obsessed with with understanding. I mean, they have, take a very engineering approach to and to, categories. To right. So everything that happens must be subsumed into a category where you can identify what are the uh, what is the way in which. Um, work in this particular sector contributes to the greater goal of there's an interesting way in which China is ruled by documents. And, and I think the, the, the plenum illustrates that very nicely. So what's going to happen now is you've got this very, very big but vague decision, which is a lot about enhancing certain things, improving, strengthening, perfecting, which is a very Chinese way of looking at things. Use of the word one shot. Yeah. The idea that you can create these regulatory regimes, which sooner or later will be perfect. And they will run in such a way that there will be only wins and no and and and, and no losses. Um, but what's going to happen now is that you're going to have all these administrative bodies taking sentences from the documents and then saying, in order to implement this, we're going to do now that and that and then that, and 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 then uh, and that's how it trickles down uh, to the lowest levels of the administration. It's something that that my my boss has has talked about before. I thought I mean it was it was really brilliant. He's you know, not always a consistent admirer of the party, but one of the things that he really likes about them is um, they have a sort of an engineering mentality. They they believe that in, in tackling a problem by breaking it down into discrete parts that which which they can then uh, uh, address individually. It's almost like, um, you know, programming by identifying the different subroutines that need to be written. Uh, uh, he, he, he feels uh, that this is one of the uh, the great strengths of the Chinese Communist Party. I, I would very much agree. This is this is a an approach that that you know it's very fundamentally technocratic, but it it works absolutely well, right? well. It works in some ways. It works. There are certain way. There are certain things that you want to operate in a technocratic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Civil aviation usually tends to be the best example. This is this is your poster child example of a system where there is a very limited number of um, wants. We want planes to transport us safely from A to B at a reasonable price. That's it. And once you set that as a goal, it's relatively easy to then, as you say, program the subroutines. How are we going to build planes? How are we going to have uniform measurements for cargo containers and so on and so forth? The problem is what is that this is happening everywhere. So in the speech that Xi Jinping gave a couple of weeks ago at the um, the Forum on Literature and Art, um, he said, and this is, this is um, decades-old party jargon, writers and artists are engineers of human souls. So in the same way that engineers will look at a piece of technology and say, we can perfect this or we can make this better, but you can only understand that in the light of what is the objective that you're trying to reach. Um, the same happens with human beings, where there is a predetermined notion, and, and the party now uses the term socialist core value system. This is the way that people should behave. This is the conception of the good that people should share. Mm-hmm. So how do we ensure that they know that and that they obey? Fascinating. I, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy having you on because, I mean, you have a very, very uh, terrific analytical mind, but also a, an understanding of, of language and... and uh, Sort of the the the, the psyche uh, that that underlies a lot of this. So it, it's wonderful to have you on here. But uh, our time is drawing to a close. I'm going to um, now shift over and 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 do our quick rec- recommendations for the week. Uh, you know, anytime you're in town, anytime I'm going to drop whatever I'm doing to have you on because I think there's like no topic that you couldn't uh, <laughs> add, add add tremendous value to. So oh, I'm quite sure. What, what a point. What a pleasure. What a pleasure to have you here. Let's um let's let's recommend. What do you have for this week? Well, uh, given the fact that Jeremy's absent, I'm going to be rather rude and have three recommendations. Oh, good, good, go for it, please. Um, so the first recommendation, you know how us academics were always about. We've now talked about this basically further reading, right? Um, and um, I guess the problem with writing about law in China is that it's very difficult to get into the inner sanctum and 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 to to sort of know what's going on behind the scenes. And it seems to me that in recent years, our ability to get access into those processes has been so somewhat decreasing. But there is a wonderful book. It's called The Politics of Lawmaking in Post-Mao China, uh, written by Murray Scott Tanner. Uh, came out in 1999. Um, but I think it is in terms of understanding the way that rules are made in China and how the system works in Beijing for for agreeing on policies or disagreeing or, or, or managing that process. I think it's still the most relevant work out there. Um, 
And then secondly, I think um, there is this thing with China people, China watchers, China scholars. We, we tend to look at China and we want to explain things in terms of China. You know, this is how things happen because of Chinese culture. But equally, I think there, there are many insights to be gained when we look at, um, at things in a comparative way. So similar organizations or other organizations where, where the contrast tells you something. And my travel read on this particular trip has been a book. It's called Keepers to the Keys of Heaven ah, by, by, right. by Roger Collins. By it's a, right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a history of the papacy. It was given to me by a wonderful um, China studies friend of mine in Oxford who essentially said, well, this is, this is actually very insightful if you want to understand the psyche of people in a position of power in an opaque organization which claims... Which dogmatic, under, I mean, like dogmatic uh, understandings of truth, um, but apart from that, um, I'm, I'm I've, well. Um, I'm about a quarter in. It is it is a riveting read, so I strongly recommend that. And the last is a paper in the China Quarterly, unfortunately paywalled, uh, written by John Sullivan uh, from Nottingham, who is uh, essentially writing about the problems that China scholars have when engaging with the media, and it's a problem you and Jeremy have talked on the podcast before, which is that. In the 80s and the 90s, some of the opinion leaders on China were academics. And you had people, I mean, Orville Schell is just one of, one of the names, who were very closely connected, people like Perry Link as well, very closely connected to a way of discussing China through academic, uh, through academic publication, but also in mainstream media. Right, they were excellent at it. I mean, they remain excellent at it. They remain excellent at it, but what we're not seeing is is that young academics are doing this. And there are now more people, it seems to me, than ever working in academia on contemporary China uh, and fewer and fewer of them. So you have hundreds of papers coming out with titles like The Use of Mobile Phones as Conduits for Labor Organization in a Factory in Some very shitty village in in Qinghai. It's <laughs> the exact title, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly, uh, shitty village, um, and and uh, and so and, uh, and and so the problem is, I think we as scholars also have to ask ourselves the question: If we talk about a tree, what does it tell us about the forest? And 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 how do we get out there in a way that actually justifies the hundreds of thousands of dollars, pounds, euros that are being spent on us on fiscal money. So I would recommend that. Yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating title. I was actually uh, privy to a, a panel that had uh, Barry Naughton, uh, who else was it? Uh, Susan Shirk and one other, oh, and, and, and Ezra Vogel, all three yeah. of them uh, at AAS a couple of years ago talking about this specific topic about, you know, connecting. And there are some, I think, scholars who have done an excellent job. Um, some of the Xinjiang guys like Jim Millward, uh, like um, uh, Jeff Wasserstrom at, at UC Irvine, uh, who who have sort of made this something that they've become very very good at doing. Rana Mitter in Oxford, R- Rana is great, Barmay. Right, exactly. Barmay is yeah, fabulous at it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I think people should, yeah should all all be paying attention to what these people do. It reminds me a little bit of that Nick Kristoff uh, op-ed that was written some some time ago. You know, sort yeah. of urging you to come down from the ivory tower and 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 engage with media. Uh, and that that got, of course roundly panned by a lot of people. I mean, and just be, because, you know, Christoph has that kind of annoying, uh, well, I, I won't go into that, but yeah, I, 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 I agree with the sentiment, even though the, the messenger was kind of objectionable to me. My recommend, those are great. Thanks. That's, that's terrific. Especially the Vatican book. I think that's, that's fascinating. Uh, one often hears comparisons being made to the Vatican. My um, recommendations. I, I have to confess that I haven't been doing a whole lot of deep China reading. In, um, I've I've been absorbed in trying for the I think the fourth time now to read Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, I'm now I'd say a good one quarter of the way, and this is further than I've ever gotten before. And realizing, oh my God, what have I been missing this whole time? Uh, it's just it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, full report when I'm done with it, but. Um, it's going to be a project that will take me another couple of months, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I, I will make one quick uh, China-related recommendation, a fabulous little, kind of tragically short piece in the Sinosphere blog by Dee Dee Kirsten Tatlau. Oh, yeah, that was great. Uh, right, it was great, wasn't it? I mean, so so she'd done is she'd gone to uh, a, a uh, there's a capital case involving a woman who had beaten her husband on the head with a, a, the barrel of an air gun, uh, 
and and then chopped up his body. It turns out she was in a very abusive relationship. This is pretty well attested. She was originally sentenced to die and now has had the verdict overturned. Uh, during the the trial, um, she was allowed to 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 see this. She actually was assaulted on her way in and ended up having to, to be in this sort of um, safety glass glassed in booth next to the, the prosecutor or something. But up. Uh, uh, Really, really interesting story uh, that, that 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 gives you this sense for the way that many Chinese people. I mean, it, it's astonishing to me. Even among my very liberal Chinese friends, there's little opposition to the death penalty. In fact, um, people tend to still see justice as essentially a retributive system here, which uh, I thought I thought was really fascinating. Really, really well reported piece uh, gives you a terrific little. Uh, look into it. Um, interestingly, you know the fact that they did let uh, Western media in to cover this uh, s- says something because you know obviously they, they wouldn't have allowed, or the, not just Western media, they would they, they allowed the, the the family of the of of the uh, the victim in. They wouldn't have allowed say the same thing into the Pujagong's uh, trial or <laughs> something. Rather not. Uh, it's rather rather not right. Uh, Don Clark pointed that out uh, in comments when I somebody linked to that on Facebook and, 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 and he made that very trenchant comment. Uh, thanks, man. That was just I, I can't wait to have you back, man. I just can't. Glad to be here. All right, we will uh, see you guys next week on Cynical Podcast and take care. Happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners. Bye. Bye.